Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Anne Oman. She began her career as a foreign service officer for the now defunct U.S. Information Agency, which was charged with winning the people's heart and minds. She served in Cambodia and Indonesia and was expelled from both countries for political, not personal reasons. Since then, Anne has worked principally as a journalist. Her articles have appeared in the Washington Post, the Washington Star, the Baltimore Sun, Washington Times, Washington Women, Family Circle, Sailing, National Geographic, World, and Senior Scholastics. She is currently a reporter at large for the Fernandina Observer in Fernandina Beach, Florida. Anne and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her latest book, a novella, Mango Rains. Good morning, Anne. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Johnny. I'm just fine. Thank you. Fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. Mango Rains is a beautifully composed and expressed book. It is genuinely perfect from the standpoint of giving us the insights about life, love, loss, and perhaps even laughter as well, if we were to live in the moment. So congratulations on its release. Well, thank you so much. Um, it, was, uh, it was fun to write. It, it was an honor to be published, and it's an honor to be on your show and to, to give me a chance to talk about it. Wonderful. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Oh, my heavens, you only have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I just turned 80, so that's going to be a long, oh, wow. a, a long life. Um, I was born in New Jersey to a middle-class Irish-American family and um, uh, grew up there, went to college in upstate New York, um, spent my junior year abroad at um, the University of Edinburgh, did summer school at the University of Geneva, where I tried to um, <laughs> to learn French and um, sort of succeeded. Um had a wonderful time traveling in that time. Um, I went as far as Egypt during one vacation and as far south as uh, Morocco in another vacation. Uh, when you're in Edinburgh, where it's pretty cold uh, most of the winter, you, you want to get as far south as uh, possible. I took the Foreign Service exam in my senior year. I had to choose whether I wanted state or USIA. I thought USIA sounded much more fun, so I took that. Um, I passed the, the written and the oral, um, and um, in September 1962, I started uh, training for the Foreign Service. Um, went to um, Cambodia the following March, um, and we can talk about that um, later when we talk about the book, I guess. But um, toward the end of that year, uh, we were um, USIA, um, the U.S. Information Agency, we were told to, um, to leave. They didn't need us anymore. I was transferred to uh, Jakarta, where um, the same thing happened about uh, a year and a half later. Um, I, um, at, at that time, um, went to New York. Um, you know, New York was always our city, um, since I grew up quite near there. 
and um, I started working for a senior scholastic uh, where I really learned to write, learned the discipline of deadlines. And um, during the summers when we didn't publish, we could go off on interesting assignments. I covered Watts um, a year after the riots there. Uh, I um, went to Haight-Ashbury and interviewed hippies. So I had a great time, and it was a great learning experience. Um, when I got married, my husband was a naval officer. We um, lived in California, uh, and then we lived in Japan. So I was back in the Far East again. Uh, he was always busy flying. It was during the Vietnam War, so I traveled a lot around Japan, went to Korea and um, Taiwan. So I kind of um, rounded out my Asia experience that way. Uh, later, we moved to Washington, uh, where he went to law school. I got a job with the Children's Magazine of National Geographic, where I also had a wonderful time. Uh, and that was great writing experience. And I did get to travel a little bit, um, went to France uh, and, and did a lot of U.S. travel, went to the Azores, the um, islands that belonged to Portugal, which no one had really heard of until recently, but now they seem to be coming up. Uh, a travel uh, destination. Um, and I, I kept on traveling. My husband had a job that um, involved travel. I often went with him. So we've been to China and um, most of Europe. And um, he had recently had a gig in the Philippines. So I went there and set one of my stories there. We have three grown daughters, uh, two grandchildren, and a Springer Spaniel. And that's about it. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I also wonderful. freelanced when I was um, when I was in right. Washington. I freelanced for the Post, uh, the Washington Star, several magazines, mm -hmm. and I wrote um, I wrote two books on um, bicycling, uh, bicycling tours uh, locally. So that meant mm -hmm. we went bicycling just about every weekend uh, <laughs> when the weather was uh, good. I wrote another book on um, that were excerpts from um, well, they were. Um, uh, yeah, excerpts from stories I had mm -hmm. done for the Post on things to do with your children in the Washington area. Right. And right. I wrote a book on the weather for National Geographic. Uh, but then Mango Rains um, was always on, in my head, and I finally mm -hmm. got it on paper, and after a long struggle, finally got someone to publish it. So here we are. Fantastic. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. When you were growing up, were there influences in your life? Because one of the reasons is, you seems to be really channeled towards academic, and obviously you did very, very well. And you were pretty much, by the time you started working, you were kind of a learned person. Well, I, that, that, that's sort of, being learned isn't <laughs> sort of an exaggeration. You know, I had sort of a basic, I, I was certainly very curious. Um, and when I was young, you know, Irish-American families uh, are, are great mm -hmm. at uh, storytelling, uh, we all mm -hmm. told stories. Um, my father told us lo these long stories about a cat he had had, which I don't think he ever actually mm -hmm. had, but this cat would get into all sorts of adventures. I would tell <laughs> stories where um, we had lived in a, a development where they had septic tanks, and I, I must have seen one overflow at some time uh, because all mm -hmm. my stories, when I wanted to get rid of a character, you know, on, on the soap <laughs> operas, they killed them off. I, I just said they fell in the septic tank. So... Um, <laughs> We, we were sort of a storytelling family, um, yeah. and I was yeah. very interested in um, history and, and world affairs and travel. Um, we read National Geographic all the time, and I, um, I would send for travel brochures. I mean, since the time I was around nine or ten years old. 
so I always had the travel bug, and I was always interested in um, um, foreign affairs. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. When did you discover that you liked writing? Well, you know, um, I, I wrote a lot of essays and um, that we had to write. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure um, of the answer to that question, but... Um, <laughs> I, I do enjoy it. I still enjoy it. I, I write for a small mm-hmm. newspaper in Florida, and I have a, a great time writing. I think any kind of any kind of writing you do is um, good preparation for any other kind of writing. I wrote two mm-hmm. chapters of a Time Life book on heating and cooling, and that was maybe a, a low point. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Writing's a challenge, and um, it, it's, it's, it's fun for me. And you get to, very, very um, if you're a reporter, you get to talk to people and ask them a lot of really nosy questions. Right. I mean, they, they don't have to answer <laughs> you, but you, you're allowed to ask the right. questions. Right. Very, very interesting. You grew up during the period of time where America is really reaching out to, in a way, educate, save the world in some ways. And so the energy here in the United States were at that sort of mindset, so to speak. Is that the reason why you pursue a career as a foreign service officer? I'm sorry. Um, you think we were reaching out to people? For personal interest. <laughs> well, I, I was always interested in, um, you know, yeah. foreign foreign lands. Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure. You know, America in the 50s and the early 60s yeah. were really like the 50s. They, they, it was pretty insular. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, you know, I think um, there were always opportunities to um, mm-hmm. to grow and to um, look look into other other ways of living. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really know. Well, the government certainly was it sort of self preservation in terms of hey, the concept is let's develop the world so that we won't have to fight another world war, and let's keep it off our shores, so to speak. From that perspective, well, um, yeah, that's very true. We were, um, mm-hmm. we we thought our way was the best way, and if we could right. show people mm-hmm. what we were like, that they would all love us. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we um, we just thought we were we had a, a pretty good idea of um, of how to live. Um, right. We were also at that time the dollar was really strong, right, and um, that that caused some resentment, but. Um, um, you know, I think there was uh, there was a certain admiration for um, American democracy, but um, you know there were a lot of problems. Our, our race problems were, mm-hmm, were mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. becoming more apparent. Right, right. Interesting. So, did you get a chance to choose your first assignment, or was it strictly a directive? It was pretty much a directive. I had um, passed uh-huh. the French exam, so I was qualified uh-huh. in French. And at that uh-huh. time, um, you know, there, there was very little chance I was going to be sent to Paris. Uh, but um, there were a lot of French-speaking countries in Africa and um, right. French Indochina, of course. And um, mm-hmm. so, no, I, I, I didn't really have a say in it at, at the time. What was the most rewarding experience as a foreign service officer? Oh, well, I think the opportunity to travel and um, to live in another country. Um, I mean, you, you, you just can't beat that. It's, um, I mean, <laughs> if if you travel and you go on a tour and you spend three days here and three days there, um, 
it's exhausting. But if you um, if you get a chance to live in a country and, uh, and right. enjoy it, it's um, it's just a marvelous experience. Right. So true. How about any low points? Um, well, you know, you're away from your family. You're away from your friends. Uh, at that point in the 60s, um, there weren't. I mean, we didn't have telephones. Um, we had telephones in the office, but um, we couldn't call. I couldn't call home or anything. You could write a letter, and it would get there two weeks later. Um, and um, so that was and, – and people didn't travel as much as they uh, as they did. You know, I, I, nobody's going to go off to um, – Paris for the weekend, uh, the way people, uh, some people do now. So, um, you know, there was a certain uh, loneliness to it. You know, I had yeah. lots of friends, but I didn't have the friends I used to have. So mm-hmm. that that is uh, a problem, and that that's a sacrifice that Foreign Service people make. Mm-hmm. Was it something that you were just determined when you were in college to do that, or is that something that someone had sort of stirred you in that direction. No, I um yes, when I was in college, I I knew about the foreign service and I thought I mm-hmm. would definitely take the exam. Didn't know that I would pass. That time um the Peace Corps was also an alternative. The, the Peace Corps had just right. been started. So, mm-hmm. um you know, there were opportunities. We were you know, we, America was pretty much an insular isolated place, That's but right. we were yeah, beginning to um go out into the world and um since I already had the travel bug from my college experience, uh, <laughs> I was I was very eager to do that. Interesting. How was the bicycling experience in Europe compared to Southeast Asia? <laughs> in, uh, I, I didn't Europe do that much bicycling in Southeast Asia. Asia to, to tell you the truth, <laughs> I um, it was very very hot. <laughs> so yes, um, I, yes. I did a limited amount of bicycling in um, in Cambodia. Mm. Um, there was a, a place we liked to go to on on the river, um, and I would sometimes ride out there with a friend. Uh, but in the end, I I gave my bicycle to my uh, to my maid when I was leaving. Uh, bicycles mm-hmm. were really important for uh, for the people then, especially for poor people, because that's it was right. a way that's to get around. Of transportation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it yeah. it it really was. Um, there were most people didn't own cars for instance well i didn't own a car either but i i took um these little um cyclopus um mm-hmm. i think you call them paychecks in malaysia maybe but um mm-hmm. we um mm-hmm. we got around the city uh, of phnom penh very well that way jakarta was different in mm-hmm. in jakarta i did have a car i had an austin mm-hmm. healy sprite uh-huh uh-huh but, That's uh, interesting, though. I mean, you must be one of the few people that have cars. Well, um, you know, Phnom Penh, it was a city built by the French. It was pretty right. easy to get around in. It was, uh, it was right, compact. Right. Jakarta is a big, sprawling city. It, it would have been That's pretty hard right, to get yeah. around by bicycle. Right, um, right, right. That's true. Very true about that. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Teachers Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchasers, Listen Notes, and Hop Hop. I'm Johnny Tant, your host, and my guest for this morning is Anne Oman. She began her career as a Foreign Service Officer for the now-defunct U.S. Information Agency, which was charged with winning the people's hearts and minds, serving Cambodia and Indonesia, and was expelled from both countries for political and non-personal reasons. 
We're having a conversation about her remarkable life journey and her latest book, a novella, Mango Rains. So, Anne, let's talk about the book. Great. How was the transition from writing nonfiction to fiction for you? Well, it, it was actually very liberating. I mean, when you're writing mm-hmm. um, a newspaper article or a nonfiction book, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, have uh, two or three sources for everything you say. You have to make sure mm-hmm. you spell everybody's name right. You don't misquote them. <laughs> Whereas in a novel, you have, you know, it's it's fiction, so you can pretty much yeah. um, do anything you want. That's true. That's very very interesting. You but in a way, try. it's it's more difficult because you um, you don't have. Um, you know, it, it, there's almost a formula for writing a news story. But there's no formula for writing a novel. You're you're kind of on your own. You're you're out there in the blue. <laughs> so true. Just give us a synopsis of the novella. Okay. Well, um, it, it's told from the point of view of a young um, foreign service officer, a woman who um, arrives in Phnom Penh in um, the season of the mango rains, which are the the rains that come before the monsoon season. So, you know, there is a little symbolism in that. Um, mm-hmm. you, you have sort of a, a gentle prelude to a, a more turbulent time. Um, and it tells about the, the people she meets, both Americans and uh, people from other countries and Cambodians and Vietnamese. And um, um, it, it goes into she she falls in love she falls out of love and meanwhile she falls oh then she falls in love again but um uh, the the backdrop is all the things that are happening uh, in the world such as um the Vietnam War which is right next door right. to Cambodia Cambodia is very peaceful but um perhaps under the surface it isn't um the monks in um Saigon are are burning themselves whereas um the monks in Phnom Penh are visiting Julia and drinking Pepsi-Cola and learning English and learning about America. But um, things uh, start to go, um, to go bad when, um, when the Vietnam War rages on. And um, in the U.S. at the time, we had no uh, tolerance for uh, neutralism. Um, you had to be pro-West or pro-communist. Um, we saw right. everything through that prism. And when you see things through a prism, there's bound to be some distortion. But um, that's how we were. It was the free world, which um, uh, Prince Sihanouk, the ruler of Cambodia, used to just mock. Um, And and then there were the the communists. And we we saw communists behind every bush, not only in the U.S., uh, but (laughs) in foreign countries. And we were terrified that uh, people were going to um, not be on our side. Whereas um, Cambodia uh, tried to be uh, neutral, and we had very little uh, tolerance for that. H- have I have I gotten away from your question about the no of the no book? no perfect <laughs> okay no perfect and then yeah. you know um, uh, President Diem in um, South Vietnam was assassinated. A few weeks later, President Kennedy was shot, and these are events that um, propel uh, the novel in a way. Um, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, they're outside events, but they have a great effect on um, the people right. in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to give away too much of the plot, but sure, um, sure, sure, sure. When, um, yeah. when Julia, the principal character, and, and, most of the, and many of the other characters in the book have to leave Phnom Penh, and um, yeah. 
they go on to um, various places, including um, Africa, Indonesia, India, mm-hmm. the U.S., mm-hmm. Europe. And um, in, the, in the second half of the book, I've tried to tell the stories of the various characters. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I try to keep it together by putting entries from um, Julia's journal at, in every chapter head. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in the end, um, Julia is in Paris. This is many years later. And um, she almost but not quite meets um, her first uh, lover from the, um, from the very beginning of the book. So I kind of <laughs> tried to wrap up the book that way. <laughs> very, very interesting. I appreciate you sharing that with us. The beauty of the novella is that these are real events that happen as well. Let me put it this way. I love history. <laughs> and well, good. Having, having someone who has been there firsthand makes a big difference to kind of really experience and sharing your side of the equation of what the true picture is on the ground, so to speak. Well, thank you. Of course, it's the true picture as I saw it, maybe not mm-hmm. as everyone saw it, but um, sure. I was free to do that since it was my novel. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. I understand. So what percentage of the book is real? Well, um, I've tried to uh, do the descriptions of uh, the city of of Phnom Penh, and I've followed the uh, sequence of events um, pretty closely, um, Mm -hmm. the outside events that that were happening. Um, And um, a lot of the characters are, are based on they're partly based on people I knew, but no one is a whole character. You know, I've taken sort of bits right, and pieces right, of sure, other sure. people and put them together with with, with a large uh, dose of imagination thrown in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the places are real. And how much of you is in the book? <laughs> well, <laughs> as I uh, as I tell my children, um, mm-hmm. none of the parts about sex are about me. So I, I had to make that very clear. Um, there, there's parts of me in the book, but I'm I'm not Julia. I'm not um, Elaine. I'm not any of the the characters. But right. I've used right. uh, I've used many of my experiences um, right. and uh, altered them a, a bit um, to um, to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I um, you know when I I did go to India and I mm-hmm. went swimming at that beach on the Bay of Bengal where. Elaine, mm-hmm. one of the characters in the book, um, mm-hmm. actually drowned, and there were mm-hmm. um, lifeguards lined up. You know, you would pay a lifeguard to mm-hmm. go out swimming with you, and I didn't do mm-hmm. that. But because mm-hmm. I'm a good swimmer, so when I but when I went out, I, I saw them looking at me, just kind of hoping that I was maybe going to uh, have problems and and called them. So you know, there there are things yeah. like that, but. You know, um, I right. didn't drown, so I lived to write the book, and uh, <laughs> so that part's not true. But I, mm-hmm. I used a lot of – I used the settings, and um, I used um, uh, some experiences, but I changed them around. Sure, sure. That's understandable. In writing this book, I guess, you don't have to do much research in the sense that you have experienced the real-life situations, and then you were able to blend real scenes into creative scenes. So how did that exactly work? Um, well, I, um, I I did do some research. I made sure I had, um, you know, things. Uh, I, I, I made sure that the, the places I was writing about uh, 
mm-hmm. were uh, were pretty much uh, true. Um, I've been to mm-hmm. all the places in the book except for two. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been to Chad, where I set one chapter, but it was the sort mm-hmm. of place where the Foreign Service would spend, send a French-speaking officer who had done well but wasn't a superstar. So I, I used mm-hmm. that. And I've never been to Nebraska, mm-hmm. but I... I wanted to have this. I had this character who I said um, keep moving, kept moving farther and farther west, like um, Dick Diver mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Uh, the Fitzgerald book, which is one of my favorite uh, stories. Mm-hmm. And I looked at a map, and there was Nebraska. So I, 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 I had to research that. So I made sure I knew, right. you know, I wasn't uh, making a terrible mistake there. Very, very interesting. Did you get a chance to visit Cambodia? since you left? I, I haven't, and I've, I've sort of toyed with the idea. I was thinking mm-hmm. once of doing a, a Mekon cruise, which apparently mm-hmm. um, people are doing mm-hmm. now. But it, in a way, I don't want to go back there because it wouldn't be the same. Um, right. You know, most of the Cambodian friends I had were because of who they were. They were um, urban people who associated with mm-hmm. Americans, the French-speaking elite. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. victims of Pol Pot. There were some right. I know who who got out, who refugeed, and and went to other places. Uh, but I think it would be sad for me uh, to go back. I, and also, the pictures I've seen of, of it, it looks like a a bustling, a really bustling mm-hmm. place. And I I just would yeah. find it. Uh, I think I'd find it painful. <laughs> but uh, but no, I have not gone back. That's interesting though, because I mean, having left, I guess in haste in a way, because of being asked to leave, how does that affect you in a way? Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm pretty tough. I'm pretty thick-skinned. I, I did not take it personally. <laughs> it wasn't a, a personal um, thing for me. I would have liked mm-hmm. to have stayed on a little longer, but um, I was ready for the next adventure. Really? Wow. That's interesting. Were you able to isolate, like, this is just a job? This is not something that in a spot of my life in a way? The term I'm using is compartmentalization. Well, I, I guess there was uh, there was some of that, but um, I, mm-hmm. I took it pretty seriously, and it was, um, you know, it was a serious mission. It, it, it's almost an impossible mission. How are you going to mm-hmm. actually get people to? Um, you can get people to like you, for instance, but then you would be always told, "Well, you're not like other Americans. You're nice." So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there were some frustrations like that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I I just think that um, we we tried our best, and um, if we didn't totally succeed, maybe we we made some friends along the way. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like when the book talking about is something surreal, and people may not realize it sometimes, and it, depending on how you read it, because with looking at morality, being ethical, trustworthiness, those kind of things. But I'm sure when you are in the situation, in the zone, at that moment in time, you have to make decisions. And some of it may not necessarily be quite, I guess, for lack of a better term, straight black and white. Well, that's, you know, that's, I think, the the thing that uh, people really need to learn, that um, not everything is black and white. And uh, there are lots of um, um, shades of gray and not Mm -hmm. all cultures Mm -hmm. think alike. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's just sort of basic communication um and, and other writers have done this better than i have um, people like graham mm-hmm. green um but i think you have to um 
understand a little bit about the culture you're dealing with. For instance, in in Southeast Asia, now I don't know whether you'll agree with me, but um, Mm -hmm. it's sort of a facade society in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, politeness, politis. Um, Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. tell you what you want to hear. And you don't necessarily have to believe it, but sometimes you have to accept it. You have to maybe Mm -hmm. show them that you know that that's not really the case. But, um, you know, Mm -hmm. Americans seem to um, prize frankness. You know, we're going to be sincere. We're going to tell it exactly like it is. But um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily work in in all cultures. And sometimes you have to kind of um, accept uh, accept people for what they are and um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, take, take things with a grain of salt. Right, right. I agree with that. I think that's very interesting analogy that you gave in terms of the the subtlety of communication and the subtlety of culture in itself. Right. I, in in the book, um, when we had the um, the Kennedy assassination, and mm-hmm. later uh, Prince Sihanouk, who um, mm-hmm. he was um, he was a rather portly gentleman, and he would mm-hmm. often go on um, these diet cures, which would make him really kind of paranoid he gave this long rambling speech and in the end of it said um that all the um uh, people uh all his and all the enemies of cambodia are now in hell and he talked about um, <laughs> um the vietnamese president diem right, right. uh marshal sarit from thailand these were cambodia's mm-hmm. ancient traditional enemies and then That's he right. said and their big boss uh meaning kennedy well, mm-hmm. that was in his rambling speech. It was not in the official translation of the speech. So should we have reacted to the actual speech or should we have reacted to the official translation? Well, if you were really um, following Southeast Asian culture, you would, mm-hmm. I think, probably react to the official, uh, the official translation and not mm-hmm. react to... Um, the the rambling sort of um, mm-hmm. paranoid speech that he gave. So right. um, by by reacting to that, and I think um, someone called in the ambassador to Cambodia and said that that this was barbaric. And of course, then the Cambodians reacted to barbaric. I mean, you don't call <laughs> people in an underdeveloped country barbaric. They have an ancient right. culture. Um, right. So. <laughs> I, I think that's an example of when you have to kind of understand the culture, understand what you're dealing with. And if you don't, right. you get into big trouble. That's that's what precipitated the break in relations. That's true from the standpoint of view in the sense that are we going in with a preconceived notion? And then they obviously have a preconceived notion because coming from Asia, I totally understand what you talked about. And where does the line go this way and that way? And I don't know. That's a toughie. <laughs> well, it is a toughie, but you just have to, I think, yeah. be tolerant of um, other cultures and uh, mm-hmm. uh, other people's customs. Right, right. So true. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple's Podcast, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, MixCloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hub Hopper. My guest is Anne Omar. She began her career as a Foreign Service Officer for the now-defunct U.S. Information Agency, which was charged with winning the people's heart and mind. 
she served in Cambodia and Indonesia and was expelled from both countries for political, not personal reasons. We're having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her latest book, a novella, Mango Rains. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. And were you ever in danger in Cambodia? Well, I never thought so, but maybe I was just too dumb to know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely never thought so. Um, people were always friendly on, on a personal basis. Um, I'm not sure everybody knew I was American. I maybe passed for French among some uh, some of the Cambodians, but um, I, you know. And then, late, but later, when Pol Pot came, it, it showed right. there was maybe something going on that I certainly wasn't aware of and, and didn't understand. Very interesting. How did the Buddhist philosophy of life influence your way of life and thoughts? Well, um, you know, I, I'm sympathetic with um, the Buddhist uh, point of view. I, I like the mm-hmm. idea of, um, you know, trying to um, perfect yourself and, and not do any harm. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I did not admire their actions with the Rohingyas in, um, in mm-hmm. Burma, certainly, mm-hmm. and that was sort of disillusioning. But um, I, I like the Buddhist idea of life as sort of a, a cycle. But I, you know, I, I'm not a practicing Buddhist or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I find mm-hmm. their ideas um, appealing. Interesting. What was the most shocking difference between the Southeast Asian culture compared to the Western civilization you witnessed? Ah, uh, well, um, I think they were definitely more subtle, and and also. Um, the idea of time, um, time being um, a continuum. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, in the music or, or in the dancing. Um, and I think that, that leads to um, a point of view that, um, you know, maybe uh, what we do is, what we do today is not so important. You have to sort of see it in a in a longer context. I, I don't think I'm expressing mm-hmm. this well, but... Um, Uh, But there is a difference, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. How close did the CIA dance with the U.S. Information Agency? Well, you know, I was uh, not very high up in in the USIA, so (laughs) I don't think very closely. I I will tell you that um, when I was in Jakarta, I was um, in charge of book translations. I was trying to get Mm -hmm. Indonesian publishers to um, publish American books and we would give them um, certain incentives. And mm-hmm. um, what um, USIA wanted us to publish maybe more hardline anti-communist books that mm-hmm. Indonesian publishers didn't want to publish. But when yeah. I had a case like that, um, I would turn them over to um, the nice people in the CIA who were attached to the embassy <laughs> and let them, uh, let them do it from there. Uh, but that was yeah. the only contact that that I knew of, um, as far as um, dancing with uh, dancing with the CIA. <laughs> you were there during Sukarno's time, right? I was, um, and uh, it was an interesting. He was a very interesting guy, and um, yeah, he um, was very friendly. The American ambassador was very friendly mm-hmm. with Sukarno, and I think. Mm-hmm. This is a person. Uh, I'm sure he's dead now, so I'm not malign. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not maligning anyone who's alive. <laughs> but um, he sort of didn't grasp that um, 
there was a uh, sort of a, a politeness factor. So he would believe everything Sukarno told him, even though mm-hmm. most of us, even I was a kid, but I knew that it was just mm-hmm. um, politeness. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he would actually mm-hmm. um, uh, write it, it back to the department. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, and Sukarno, I think, um, was certainly smarter than a lot of us were at the time. <laughs> he knew how to play us well. But he was a charmer, like as was Prince Inu. Yeah, I yeah. met them yeah, both on a yeah. couple of occasions, and they were uh-huh. charming and friendly and everything else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they had their own agenda. They wanted to right. be neutral. We wanted them in mm-hmm. our pockets. <laughs> they didn't right, like that. Right. That's correct. <laughs> what were the biggest takeaways for you from the time spent in Cambodia and in Indonesia? Um, well, you know that uh, that uh, people have different um, points of view, but mm-hmm. um, well, you can communicate. And you know, I had good friends, great friends in in both countries, and mm-hmm. um, it, it's possible to be um, good friends with um, someone from another culture, even though you probably don't agree on all things. Mm-hmm. Is that too vague? I I, I don't know. Um, no, no, no. I mean, you know, an appreciation for yeah. other people's yeah. culture, even though maybe you're not going to adopt it, uh, adapt it. Mm-hmm. Uh, about time being at Continuum. I mean, Indonesians would go to all night puppet shows. I've been to all night right. puppet shows, but right. <laughs> you know, they have a greater tolerance for long. Um, it, it, it's just a different concept of time, and it's fascinating to learn. Uh, learn things about other people. Plus, both Cambodia and Indonesia had very ancient cultures, and it was great to, mm-hmm. you know, in in, mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, if, if something happened 200 years ago, it was really historic, whereas in <laughs> Cambodia and Indonesia, you could go to temples that were built in the 7th century. So uh, it's, right. Right. it's very eye-opening. That's right. That's true. So true. How do you view the world today? Ah, well, it's quite different. You know, we, we no longer have, um, you know, it used to be a struggle between East and West, and now it's a right. struggle between, you know, I guess uh, terrorism and democracy, I suppose mm-hmm. you could, and it's even mm-hmm. much more complex than that. Um, yeah. I, I think we have, you know, we have a lot more communication, but whether we mm-hmm. have a lot more understanding, I'm, <laughs> I, I sort of doubt. <laughs> Interesting. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading Mango Rains? Ah, well, um, an appreciation of a, a different uh, time and place. Um, you know, what, what do you gain from any kind of, um, I, I suppose I should put quotes around this work of art. Yeah, you know, you gain a kind of an ascetic experience. And um, you also gain maybe a little knowledge, um, a little understanding. Mm-hmm. I think um, what I... I would like to people to understand is that um, you know the men and women in the foreign service work very hard and uh, often mm-hmm. under dangerous conditions and they deserve our our support and respect mm-hmm. um, and also that other cultures uh, deserve our uh, our respect. That's well put and most importantly also I guess the drive within each individual that works for the foreign service it's that sort of genuine of trying to promote democracy I would think. Um, well, you know, I guess we were trying to promote um, democracy, but um, you know, we we had our um, our 
it was it was more complex than that. We um, mm-hmm. are, are we, we were also supporting um, U.S. foreign po- policy, which oh, yeah. Um, yeah. we we in 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 Cambodia we were supporting uh, Prince Sihanouk because we thought he was mm-hmm. at least a a stable um, influence. Um, mm-hmm. So we weren't advocating that Cambodia become a republic or a democracy, really. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, saying that we're promoting democracy is maybe just a little, a little too pat. We're, we're promoting um, American foreign policy in general. Right. Very, very interesting. Where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your book, and keep up with your latest happenings? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. But I, there is a website. It's www.mangorains, all one word, dot net. And if you go on that, you can learn much more than you ever wanted to know about me. <laughs> and there are little buttons you can press to order the book uh, from either a local bookstore or from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I have some uh, publicity things that I've done, um, some possible questions for book clubs, and uh, even a recipe for a Mango Rains cocktail. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a storehouse of information. Fantastic. That's wonderful. What is next for you? Well, you know, um <laughs> I I have a great life, I think. I um I have um two homes and nice places and I mm-hmm. still ride my bicycle and uh swim in the ocean and I, I'm a painter, I a watercolor painter. Um so I, I don't have any great plans. I'm hoping that this COVID um gets uh <laughs> under control soon and um, right. be able to see friends and, and do things like that. But um, I, I I don't have another novel in mind. I think um, you have to have a really compelling idea if you're going to write mm-hmm. a novel. I, I, I'm not like a career novelist who has to keep turning one out <laughs> year after year. So if I get a really good idea, I'll I'll start writing again. Um, I'll start writing a novel again, but um, right now I don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, the most important thing is you're enjoying life, and that's it. That's it, right there. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I think um, you know you have to be open to new experiences, uh, new adventures, and uh, there's always um, something good happening. That's true. So true. Since our show is about people, family, and living life. Would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Well, um, you know, just what I said, be um, be open to new ideas, um, new experiences. Um, don't be timid. Um, be adventurous and uh, enjoy life. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my advice anyway. It's pretty simple. Wonderful. I mean, you've lived. That's well, uh, yeah, I have. I, I just turned 80, so... <laughs> Still going strong, and uh, I hope to be going strong for a few more years. Fantastic. That's beautiful. And thank you for giving us the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me. I'm from my mama's kitchen talk radio. To all our listeners, since October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, please join me next Tuesday morning, October 13th. My guest will be Mark Pillon. He is the executive director of Susan G. Coleman's Los Angeles County, California. Mark and I will be having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey, breast cancer, and the challenges of breast cancer patients, survivors, and metastatic breast cancer thrivers due to COVID-19. 
For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed week. And it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again, and have a very blessed day. Well, thank you, Johnny, and you too. Thank you. Bye-bye.